0: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're gonna talk about taste. Why do you like the bands that you like? This is the big question. We're also gonna talk about the new Beyonce and Drake records and the Pearl Jam tour. But first, before we start, Today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC. And we're back. We're going to do our What We're Listening To segment. I'm here with Brittany Spanos, staff writer, Rollingstone.com. What's up, Brittany? Hi. How are you? (laughs) We're going to talk about a couple very obscure records today. Uh, Beyonce's (laughs) Lemonade and Drake's Views from the Six. (laughs) Very
1: underground today. Very underground. Deep
0: underground. (laughs) Sorry, everybody at home. Let me start with Beyoncé's Lemonade. This is like one of the albums of the year. We gave it five stars in Rolling Stone, which we very rarely do. This is a huge record for everybody on staff and just the universe in general. Brittany, how's it wearing in for you? You've had it for, like, a week and a half now. Like, what are your overall
1: thoughts? I still can't stop listening to it. I mean, it's been my go-to album, just listening to it every day. And I feel like I was just starting to come off of listening to her self-titled album every day. So it's nice <laughs> it's to a have a, a new It's a smooth segue. Right, yeah,
0: that's good. <laughs> just in time. Yeah. <laughs> what songs jumped out immediately, and, like, what songs are you going to now?
1: I mean, it was really fun listening to it for the first time because when I was listening to it I felt like every single song was going to be like my favorite like every single song I was super excited about when it sort of hit because everything sounded a little bit more unique and different for her but I gotta say Don't Hurt Yourself was a big one for me. I'm a huge, like, blues rock and classic rock fan, so having Beyonce work with Jack White and use a Led Zeppelin sample on a song just felt so... This is the
0: song she did with Jack White, and they sampled a little bit of When the Levee Breaks mm-hmm. by, by Zeppelin.
1: Yeah, and it was just so full of rage and passion, and...
0: This could be my favorite Jack White song in yeah. a few years, <laughs> for sure, Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was just a huge breath of fresh air for her sound and um, reminded me a lot of "Ring the alarm off of B-Day and sort of this just super passionate betrayal and channeling all that anger and using this incredible When the Levee Breaks sample on it was a huge breath of fresh air for me.
0: I guess I should just back up for anybody who's been like on a merchant marine tanker or anything (laughs) for the last few weeks with No Satellite. Cell phone. Beyonce released Lemonade with a HBO special. It's a visual album. It was technically a surprise record, although she did kind of. People knew there was something coming on HBO. Right. Uh, And now it's available on Tidal and the iTunes Store. Yeah, I think
1: she put it on Apple Music the day after. Right. um, and yeah, I mean, especially leading with Formation back in February, and that really hinted how soon everything was going to come. That was the, the song that she
0: debuted at the Super Bowl yeah. and just kind of blew Coldplay off the stage with.
1: Baby with baby Having it at the end of the album, I like it even more sort of in the context of this hyper-political story of hers that she's telling through the lens of a black southern woman is incredible to hear formation at the end of it and makes the sound even more potent.
0: I mean we could have a separate episode just on like the visuals for the mm-hmm. visual album. Which, I mean she kind of stuck with a lot of the imagery like from New Orleans. I mean a lot yeah. of the, the videos are shot in kind of old New Orleans mansions or in plantations and there's mm-hmm. like still like a deep yeah southern vibe to this whole record. Yeah. I'm loving freedom, still, it's mm-hmm. so powerful.
1: Open our mind as we cast away oppression. Open the streets and watch our beliefs. And when they call my name inside the concrete, I pray it forever reads. Freedom, freedom, not camo. Freedom call me loose. and Kendrick Lamar really play well off of each other. They both steal the scene whenever they're on people's tracks, and it's a nice balance between the pair of them. And I feel like neither of them overpower or overshadow each other on that track, which is rare for either of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's
0: a total, like, the (laughs) the combination of the two, like, you know, Kendrick has, like, these intricate rhymes that you kind of, like, lose yourself into. And then she's got this, like, the voice that, like, rings like a bell over it. Mm -hmm. And the combination, you're totally right.
1: Yeah, it sounds a little bit like a gospel song. Like, you can totally hear that in church on a Sunday. And it's really, really powerful. And especially the visual that came with it. And having the mothers of these black men who lost their to police brutality is yeah. incredibly powerful especially yeah, yeah.
0: In, the, in the in the music video mm-hmm. they're, they're featured right and then uh, I mean just on like a very light pop level uh, hold up yeah. kind of stuck out immediately that was the one that kind of like the first time you heard it like oh okay this, is like, <laughs> this could be the single
2: they don't
1: love you like I love you I spoke with Sia last year, and she talked about how Beyonce's like Frankenstein almost with her songwriting, and kind of picks and like pieces from different songs that she'll get or songs that she's written,
0: and absolutely like yeah. you look at the we ha- we have the full credits for this; and they're mm-hmm. available on title, and like you look at the, just this one <laughs> song has like maybe like twenty writers on it, which is yeah. crazy, and it's like this like slice of music like is like, like from Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend to like Diplo to like you Father know Father John Misty, right? It's like it's like a a, a third of the Billboard chart. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I mean, the Ezra line that he contributed was, um, hold up, they don't love you like I love you. And that was a, a tweet that he had made of a reimagination of like the yeah, yeah, yeahs maps. And then the tweet turned into a song that he worked on with Diplo. And then Diplo was like, this would be better for Beyonce. And so... <laughs>
0: And the rest is history.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's just like, it still is really biting. And I mean, that visual also is with her in the yellow dress and the baseball bat, just kind of gleefully running around and breaking stuff. So, (laughs) yeah, looking incredibly
0: like fabulous going down the street with smashing things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any other like deep tracks that like took you a minute but now are kind of coming forward?
1: I think that the song All Night, another Diplo production, has also really grown on me over the past week and a half. that one's become a sort of late favorite i just think her voice sounds really incredible on it and it's kind of this slower song and sort of the guitar riff on it it's a little like little rootsy-ish but not really and very soulful and fun so yeah
0: and i'm liking sorry a lot too
1: Yeah, that song is great. I mean, it's sort of been overpowered by a lot of the conversation of like, who's Becky? But I think the song itself is so beautiful and wonderful and just really sad.
0: Yeah. Alright, well let's segue to another obscure record, uh, Drake's Views from the Six. Mm-hmm. I actually had a moment after the Beyonce record came out to so much fanfare. I, we knew that the Drake album was coming on April 29th, a week later. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, can Drake actually be overshadowed <laughs> by another record? Uh, I don't think it's actually been overshadowed, but there have been some mixed reviews of this, It's and it's. It's definitely, there's yeah. a lot here. There's like 16 or 17 tracks. There's a lot to get 20. through. 20 tracks, sorry. minutes. <laughs> sorry, yeah. <laughs> it's so long. There's a lot to get through, and I, I think this, this might be a grower, but there definitely, there, there was some lukewarm reaction. What was your reaction to it?
1: It just it took so long to get through. It was, like, really, really long. <laughs> and um, I think the only Drake album that I immediately, immediately loved was If You're Reading so It's Too Late. But I think this one...
0: It's probably my favorite Drake record, too. Yeah, yeah, like,
1: that one, right away, I was very taken, especially, like, the lead with Legend. But, yeah, like, this one, it's sort of... It's more songs are growing on me, especially I'm able to absorb more once I, like, take the time and have to listen to the album in different parts. Right. Um, but it just... It feels a lot like his... Production is growing and his range of styles that he's approaching are growing. And then the subject matter reminds me a lot of, like, Take Care and Nothing was the same in a lot of ways. Right. So I'm kind of, like, hoping for more growth in that area, which is why I liked If You're Reading This because he discussed well, his family a lot more.
0: People hold him up as this, like, quintessential 21st century uh, artist in that, mm-hmm. like, he's he's not really on this album cycle in a way. Like, he, you yeah. know, his records last year he came out with, you know, If You're Reading This, uh, It's Too Late, which mm-hmm. he called a mixtape. Even though it was for sale, yeah. uh, uh Apple Music, and then he came out with the album with um, Future, mm-hmm. which he also called a mixtape, I think, and he like recorded them very, you know, very quickly, like in a week or two each. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long, but they weren't like official albums. And this is the Views from the Six is the official album. Yeah. you know, but I think a lot of people, like we were just talking about, like we're enjoying maybe like kind of the looseness and the kind of like willingness to try new things mm-hmm. on the on the last two albums. Yeah, you know, and this some of this does feel a little bit. Overthought. Like, I the songs that I like on this record are the ones that feel like he's kind of pushing the ball forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, Child's Play, I think, is, like, totally charming. Why you gotta fight with me at Cheesecake? You know I love to go there. Say I'm acting light-skinned. I can't take you nowhere. This a place for families that drive Camrys and go to Disney. A little more dancey, you know, he's having this conversation (laughs) with a woman who's unhappy that they're going to the Cheesecake Factory, which is hilarious. (laughs) Uh, It's just like totally charming. But there's other songs that kind of just recall some of his older albums in a way that I, I didn't love immediately.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree with the idea of it being overthought because I feel like Drake is always best when he's sort of spontaneous and in the past two, three years he's been dropping a lot of like random singles on Ovo Sound Radio this past year especially, but on SoundCloud, like Hotline Bling was one of those spontaneous kind of Lucy singles that he just dropped last summer and became one of his biggest hits. You used to call me on my cell phone Late night when you need my love Call me on my cell phone I think that the sort of spontaneity of some of his songs like I feel like Chow's play sounds a little like kind of ridiculous and also has a spontaneous quality to it. He's really
0: like the heir to like Lil Wayne mm-hmm. I mean literally he pioneered like this idea that you're on this twenty four seven cycle I'm like always gonna be releasing stuff yeah. and you're gonna and that's like kind of how hotline bling came out and now But now it's like okay, he's saying this is the real album, and I think Mm -hmm. you know we may all be proven wrong. You know, maybe you know this will grow into a classic, but right now it feels a little bit. It's it felt a little underwhelming.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely like a headphone album too, and a very like late night in your feelings type of album. Like I feel like it's sort of it's very reflective for him, and I think that. I mean, that's always been the appeal of Drake, though, too, is he's like, you can kind of appeal to him on this, like, emotional level. And right. um, I think a lot of the songs do carry that, like, Fire and Desire is a personal favorite. dirt on my old name. Only gets
0: worse when you know things You don't see the perks of this whole thing
1: but get very get sleepyish track and very R&B and sort of the sing-rapping that he's really mastered in a lot of ways since. Hold on, we're going home and kind of into Hotline Bling and especially with this album,
0: right? I I would like to see him take it like some of his lyrical content evolve a little more too. Jonah Weiner in his review of it pointed out that a lot of the challenges he's facing in the songs are are kind haven't changed that much. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, a woman who doesn't understand him or, you know, or like people are out to get him or people don't get, you know, how great he is. And it feels like, okay, he's, Clearly at this other level, he's, like, towering over so many other rappers or pop stars, anybody, and, and, you know, he's occupying the singular place. I kind of – I want him to find something else, you know, to to talk about.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's why I loved you in The Six on If You're Reading This. I mean – For him to sort of dive... That that song to
0: his mother, you know, really powerful, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, for him to dive into being biracial and being, like, having this, you know, Canadian Jewish mother and this southern black father and diving into his relationship with his mother and this open letter to her and addressing sort of the weird relationship with his father and with um, being famous and all of that, it was just, like, a really beautiful narrative and stayed with who Drake is as a rapper and as an artist, but also really brought him to this new, really deeper territory. Right.
0: And he was also, like, exploring more West Indian music, you know, from uh, Toronto, is yeah. such this incredible, like, multicultural place. And there's this uh, of like, West Indian music. And he was pulling in more influences with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, dance hall stuff last year. And, and there's some of that. And there are, you know, a few different, like, there's a few frills or yeah. a few twists on this record, but I, I, I wish there were a few more.
1: I would love if he just released an entire album of, like, Caribbean fusion music. Like, oh, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, Controlla is, I mean that song leaked a couple weeks before and it had this great verse from PopCon and I wish that he had kept it on there, but it's still a really beautiful song. I think I for you. I think I die for you. you. you Controlla going into one dance is Probably the best one two punch like yeah. from a Drake album that yeah. I have ever heard. Ways, front way back way. You know that I don't play. Streets not safe, but I never run away, even when I'm away. If he continued doing that, I mean hotline bling obviously was such a huge success for him, and I right. think that
0: And One Dance yeah. is one of the songs where he adds, you know, it's got a dance beat, like samples in 80s club yeah. track. We talked about it a few episodes ago. And, and mm-hmm. I was hoping for more of that. Yeah.
1: yeah. And same with Too Good. I mean him and Rihanna are like Epic together and incredible. I'm
0: way too good to you. You take my love for granted. I just don't understand
1: it. I don't know how to talk to you. I, just know I find myself lost with you. Too good also has this Caribbean flair to it, and also just the playfulness of him and Rihanna's relationship and their like friendship and/or romantic relationship, whatever, but yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll put a pin in this record. We'll come back to it. Talk to us in six months after everybody's had a chance to process it a little more.
1: Obsessed with it in six months, probably. All right.
0: We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to hold you to that. Brittany Spanos, thanks for coming on. Thank you. If you run your own business or have a side gig, getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office can take up valuable time and leasing a postage meter is too expensive. Luckily, there's a better way, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. So sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code MUSIC for this special offer. You get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com, Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in music. That's stamps.com and enter music.
1: Fill your eyes. Smile.
0: And that was Golden Slumbers from the Beatles' Abbey Road, which is one of the songs covered in a new book by my old friend Tom Vanderbilt called. You may also like, which gets at taste and why people like things, and maybe calls into question like one of the fundamental beliefs of Rolling Stone and this podcast that like some music is inherently good, and like we just like stuff because it's really good, and if you don't like it, you don't know what you're talking about. Tom,
3: <laughs> thanks for coming. <laughs> My pleasure. And if I can just uh, actually begin on a personal note, you know it is interesting that maybe roughly, I'm going to say three decades ago, We were probably sitting in some college newspaper office or bar actually talking about music and what music you should like or shouldn't. Right.
0: And I was, yeah, might've been saying you're an idiot if you don't like this song. And yeah. So yeah. this
3: either, you know, this speaks either, you know, to the great enduring power of music, or I guess is perhaps reflective of something more deeply pathetic about us. But, maybe maybe you know, they like, we're just doing it, the same
0: <laughs> thing, but like with yeah. like a little more. I backup. still think you
3: were wrong about Oasis though, but.
0: Oh, no, just, oh man. Tom, why don't you tell me like what this, uh, what what you were thinking when you started this book? What, well, I mean, what? since
3: we were just talking about the Beatles, I mean, the, you know, my whole thing when I write is to try to delve into the world of, of psychology and academic research and to see what light, you know, this kind of stuff has been able to shed on on things like pop culture. So uh, with the Beatles, I mean, there was an interesting study done that kind of looked, you know, if you, if you analyze the complexity of Beatles songs and looked at their popularity over time, it was the more musically complex ones that are the ones basically we're still talking about today. These are the kind of critically revered and, and, and really more popularly revered things. So, you know, so, this, I, so, so, yeah, so like, yeah, I remember this is super interesting because
0: so basically you're saying like that the the songs that people go back to people go back to like "Love me do less than they do like ab, stuff from Abbey Road, or is it like the more complicated or yes. uh,
3: maybe not exactly, but like, and there's a couple of ways to think about that. One even relates to something like food. i mean when when a taste is kind of simpler and and one more more of sort of a one note let's just use example from soda pop you know there's a reason orange soda isn't quite as popular as something like coca-cola it's a very straight kind of orange very very sweet simple note it it, you know might taste pretty good once but the idea that you're going to drink that week in and week out it doesn't hold out in the, you know, the market. Right. People like Coke. It's a kind of more, you can't quite tell exactly what's going on with Coke. It's kind of a mysterious blend of things. It just becomes sort of Coke. So the idea is, you know, we burn out faster on that simpler stuff. So you can kind right. of look at, at, like the pop charts in a way, arguably as kind of the soda pop of, uh, you know, right. of music, if you will. Right. it, it Sounds great the first few times going down. You know, it, some of it may have lasting power, but um, you know, there's so many. Just look at the pop charts from the early 1970s or any era, and right. the number of those songs that are still being played with a lot of frequency today is pretty low. Right. You know. So, but with this book, oh, backing up for a minute, like with this book overall, you you
0: tried to answer the question, like why in this world of like. Incredible choice, where we're all bombarded with all these things in our face. All these, we have, get all this information. There's all so many things to buy. Why do we like what we like? And so, and today we're going to kind of focus on like the musical aspect of that because I know that's one big chapter in your book and it's fascinating. There's like something on every single page where it's like, wait, really? No. So I want to get into that. But
3: what made you want to write this book? Was there like a? I mean, there were, there were a number of things. I mean, one thing was just this simple question for my then four-year-old at the time daughter wanting to know what my favorite color was. And, and this kind of... They're, they're, she'd been asking me, like, a series of these things. What's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? And, and the thing is, I gave her an answer, and I, I wasn't sure if I was just trying to placate her because, you know, children are sort of obsessed with favorites for, for a period. I think they're trying to, like, figure out their identity, and, and these things are very easy tokens, and, and they seem to mean something to them. The way right. that music eventually begins to when you're in, you know, more in sort of but, high school, junior high school, college one of the first subjects that will come up that when people are introduced to one another, you know, trying to find common ground right? or on your Facebook likes. So like
0: when you're four years old, it's kind of, that's who I am. I like blue. Yeah. That's like a way of saying like, that's who I am. And then like kind of when you're older in a way, like you're defining yourself by saying, I like emo. Yes.
3: We're not really talking about colors in college. but Right. And, you know, music, she, the world is an open book to her. She still thinks my music taste is what she should like, which is great, and that's going to change. Yeah, enjoy rap, that but, while it yeah, yeah. She thinks, for the moment, her, I'm not lying, her favorite song is called uh, All of Me by the band Tan Lines, which, you, this is a, you know, the, the kids, quote unquote, like tan lines, but I don't think they're thinking like the four-year-old kids. They're kind of an earl- older version of kids, but that's going to radically change. Tan lines is going to seem as cool as they are. It's going to seem pretty uncool for like a seven-year-old. Yeah, I don't I know think. what so, you kind
0: of shelf life that is. Maybe she'll come back to tan lines at some point. Yeah,
3: it's it's catchy. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so, I give this answer. Blue. Blue is is it's the most. I'm wearing blue today. You know, yeah. It, when it's your daughter op-
0: asks you what color, yeah.
3: So I sort of you know, kind of wanted to know why I gave this answer blue, which led me to look into psychological research. And and one of the more, more interesting theories and believable theories to me was this guy, Stephen Palmer out at Berkeley. It's called the ecological valence theory. It's a great sounding thing to basically say, we, we seem to like the colors of the things that we like the most in the world, the things that, you know, we've sort of been exposed to that have given us the most positive um, right. kind of experience. So blue, it's like, Think of what the things connoted by blue: uh, blue skies, blue water. You know, these are things that are, are generally nothing but good connotations. Right. Uh, you know, they've tried to do studies where they prime people with negative images of certain colors and then ask them about their liking. So if you show people bloody wounds, red goes down. So right. So even like on election day, this p- campaign season, you know, there's going to be some blue, right, positivity going on. in right, in this like Trump. Voters might not like blue as much because they don't like Hillary Clinton. Because they're seeing blue associated with the Democrats. And it it kind of, so, you know, a lot of likes are like this. Um, It's just these kind of processes of exposure. You know, you sort of like what you hear, you like what you're exposed to. The more you're exposed to it, the more chance you have to like it. So I tried to stretch some of those overarching theories across, you know, music, food, art, you name it. With music, I guess, like the $64 question is
0: after you were done with this book where you got all this this information in about why people like what they do, and, and you touched on a lot of things about how a lot of, you know, obviously, and this isn't rocket science, a, lo- a lot of people like the music that they like because of where they're from or what their parents are. You know, you're more likely to like country if you're from the south. That's not something you talk about because it's so obvious. But it's like a lot of it has to do with, like, you know, social status and, and where you're from and ge- geography. But Where did you end up in terms of, like, how much of what people like is because they like it or some sort of quality or how much of it is, you know, because of external factors? Did you end up
3: in a personal place with that? Yeah, I think really what you like is what you have the chance to hear. It doesn't mean you're going to like everything, but uh, the more important point is, you know, there's a lot of things that we would potentially like, I think, that we kind of short circuit ourselves away from because it doesn't seem to and, and this is the whole you know categorization let's say categorization of music genre this is sort of a very powerful double-edged sword on the one hand it's very negative it it you know there, there's I tell a story in the book that, that Lucinda Williams mentioned she, she's trying to sell her first album you know in, Na, in Nashville they said it wasn't country enough and right LA they said it was too country sort of fell between these two stools, you know, this is something that Prince was very aware of and trying to to overcome. Um, Well, if I could just jump in, I thought that was a fascinating part of your book in that, like, you talked a lot
0: uh, to places like Pandora and um, and Echo Nest, who does the music, uh, the algorithm behind Spotify. And one thing you came away with was that a lot of the algorithms have a very hard time making connections in terms of like genre. They don't really see genre. Like they don't see the difference between like you know punk and just plain rock yeah. and alt rock or cl- even classical. Like maybe like you know maybe an early prog rock record sounds like classical. You know, and that genres are really like you, you point out are really a social thing. That that has to do. That's more about us. Like if you say that you like punk rock, it's more about you saying I'm part of a certain a tribe.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, because to a computer, there are many, you know, let's say, print songs that might be in some genre that, you know, if you tried to analyze them mathematically, they might be closer to an. They might actually sit within another genre altogether, or the computer couldn't even figure it out. So yeah, so so Glenn McDonald, who's this engineer at the Echo Nest, he used kind of a, a machine learning to to analyze what people were saying on blogs, on websites, what they were saying about. Music and the people who are kind of creating these genres, and um, you know, it's kind of a fascinating. He's up to he's up to one thousand four hundred thirty six genres of music in the world. Now, no, some of these, some <laughs> of these are <laughs> scientific. You know, I mean, no. you know, my, my dad, I think, knows about six. You know, it's right. like rock and jazz, and he, this leads all sorts of fun experiments right. you can do. He just uh, identified an, a re- well. There's one called sludge metal, for example. <laughs> Sludge metal fans are, who are out there, you know, you know what sludge metal is when you hear it. But then he, he, he tried to find, someone asked him what the mathematical opposite of sludge metal was in this whole genre map. And it was actually um, kids' dance party. So, um, you know, if you <laughs> well, can kind that of sounds some, about right, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so genres, they're limiting on the one hand. But on the other hand, they're very powerful constructs for humans because I think our brains just need to create genres to help make sense of the world. I mean, there's... Right. Something psychologists call, sorry, I'm getting so much into psychology here, but they, they call categorical perception. Um, when you look at a rainbow, for example, we kind of see it as these bands of color. But what we're really seeing is sort of this whole bleeding of colors. But it, it makes more sense for the brain to chunk it into these right. things. And, you know, I think music is the same way. We hear a track by someone like Prince. And, we're, you know, one of our first things, I mean, print, I shouldn't even mention Prince because, you know, I think Prince essentially became... He, he, like his own genre like that was his like strength so you, you kind of stop thinking in those terms but right. very few people but there's like a all
0: right we were just talking about the Beyonce record there's a Beyonce song produced by Jack White which mm-hmm. sounds you know it could be a hard rock song but a lot of people are going to think of it in terms of oh it's Beyonce so it's it's going to be R&B or pop
3: yeah so i mean the, the we, we just think a lot in these kind of what are called top-down ways. We come to things with expectations built in. So if you know, quote unquote, no, you don't like country. You know, you're just going to f- cut yourself off from all these things. And, and right. you know, what's really interesting to me is that you get, you know, these kind of VW commercials or or, um, or or movie soundtracks when they'll play something that most people probably haven't heard before, like Pink Moon, and you know. Something Nick Drake enjoys this song, huge yeah. new burst of popularity because people didn't know what it was. You know, if I right. if I tried to sell some, if you tried to sell Nick Drake to people on on the basis of like, well, he's a kind of some English folk singer who used strange tunings on his guitar and he um, had oblique lyrics. You know, it's not, it's not an easy sell for right. a lot of people, but to just hear the song and it, you can. Look at Google and the, there's an autocomplete for like, you know, what is the song on that VW commercial? Like people just go running to the internet because right. uh, they've had the chance to hear it without these preconceptions. Well, that's yeah, that's, yeah. A,
0: that's a super interesting point in your book too about how like soundtrack songs, songs that you hear in a, kind of a soundtrack framework in a movie or an ad, are, you hear those songs that you're kind of your most open moment. You're really kind of op- You're not thinking about like before that VW commercial, Nick Drake was something that – Maybe fifty-year-old white men who knew a lot about British invasion rock and obscure '70s British singer-songwriters listened to, yeah. And after that, Nick Drake was being listened to like by so many more different people. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and this creates an interesting thing that you know places like Pandora have seen that when you have one of these unexpected sort of crossover or surprise hits, you know, you suddenly bring in a new audience that might be very different from all the people that were listening to it before. So. Sounds ignorant. But the band is called Fun. Yeah. The song is We Are Young. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I want to reverse that, but so that song became a hit because it was on Glee, Glee as I recall. Right. So suddenly people were setting up these Fun stations on Pandora. But you know, as Pandora told me, you know, this had, that song had been sitting around Pandora for a while. It'd been out for at least a year or two, right? And the you know it was kind of in the space of of other kind of indie pop you know acts, and so the people who were creating Fun stations before on Pandora were very different than the people who then. Came on, as far as what they wanted to hear next, right? Because that's kind of the big thing. Is is fun for you part of this, you know, kind of Glee situation, or is it part of a different universe? And, and right. those universes can be very far apart, right? Right. It had like a totally different genre. Like the, the genre hadn't like coalesced around it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this, you know, this gets into questions about art and audience that are that are kind of deep, and that I, I think I, you know, quote Steve Albini in the book talking about, you know, you. There's a virtue to being small and hardly known because everyone who's at that show really loves you. But then, as the word starts to get out, you might get people attracted to you who aren't quite as fond of you. And as he put it, may even have kind of a dislike of you <laughs> when you go to play a show. So, um, right. And you can see this in things like the book world when a, when a, and I don't know if this happens in music, but when a book wins a major literary prize, if you look at the website Goodreads, the reviews start to go down the minute it wins the award. <laughs> because either because people, people's expectations were raised or right. it brought all these – the publicity from that award brought all these new people to that book who weren't quite the natural audience and they were less impressed.
0: Right, so. right.
3: <laughs> Well, you you did you spend a fair amount of time on
0: Pandora, which is an interesting case because, and you talked to the founder Tim Westergren because a big thing about Pandora was that they were trying to look past kind of these kind of genre divisions that we have and, and just give people music that they might not think they should like that wasn't connected just to some kind of like buying grid like oh if you like uh, this pop group you'll like another pop group even if it said, sounds differently. They were trying at least at the beginning. I think they still are. To, to give people stuff that just sounds similar.
3: Yes, and Tim said that early on he had this kind of fantasy idea to to just play music with no information at all, no contextual information. Right. And this was deemed to be stupid, he said, so they added stuff. And, and currently, you know, if you... Like stu- maybe you really would get, like, you know, Led Zeppelin
0: fans to like a Beyoncé song that way, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean,
3: this kind of goes back to this old dream of the most freeform early 1970s radio that's out there that really doesn't exist too much anymore, but... You can break down things in some interesting ways and try to bring connections to people that, I mean, one example they gave me was uh, the song Lemons Never Forget by the Bee Gees, early sort of psychedelic tinged Bee Gees track that sounds pretty Beatles-esque. Um, you know, for a lot of people, not everyone, but you know, a lot of people have this mental model right away of the Bee Gees that they would hit, you know, thumbs down or next right away if they just saw the name Bee Gees, if you didn't hear it. So, you right. know. Pandora, you know, 50 billion thumbs later, you know, they have a pretty good sense of how a lot of these dynamics work. And I mean, they they make the point that most of their, I forget the statistic, but most of the music on Pandora is actually played, which speaks well to the virtues of human curation, which is what Pandora is. I mean, Spotify has... As the Forgotify website points out, there's uh, something like 5 million songs that have never been played once on, out Spot, like the, on Spotify. The, out of like the 30
0: million songs on Spotify, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So, um, you know, there's still a, a strong role for humans picking right. music. Right. And currently, you know, if you go to Pandora and start a new station, it won't just kind of throw that throw you into that music. It'll give you these almost uh, sort of sensory attributes of what you're going to listen to. I forget what I just did, but it was like breathy male vocalist, major key tonality. Right. Then when you go to the next song, they'll kind of walk you to why I mean, it's, it's it's almost like music appreciation 101 in some ways that, you know, they'll say, here's why we're now doing this because they share this certain attribute. Then right. They don't just kind of, you know, throw you into it.
0: Right, right. I
3: mean, I feel like, um, you know, going
0: back to the original point, like, you know, a lot of your book is about the reasons why we like things that don't have to do with the thing itself, Right. And there's a lot of interesting points about that we can come back to, but I did have some hope for the idea of, like, you know, some things are inherently better than others. Like, some songs are inherently better than others, both because of that point you made about the Beatles, you know, and that, you know, more complex music kind of, like, bears more listening. But also I feel like... So many of us start listening to music, like, when we're young because it's, like, such an identity thing, you know, like the classic thing in high school, you know, if you're, like, a jock, you listen to certain kind of music, and if you're, like, a troublemaker, you listen to heavy metal or not, whatever. But I feel like as we get older and as someone who's been listening to music for a long time, I I, I would hope it it becomes less about identity and that you just end up finding stuff that you like. I would hope. Do Do you feel like that's true?
3: Yeah, I mean, to the extent that I actually have the time to hunt, to hunt <laughs> stuff. All right. To, I, mean, I mean, this is this is the point. Yeah, I mean, but I'm not sure whether I am appreciating things more for their actual quality, or I'm just kind of I'm just too tired. You know, I'm, <laughs> too, I'm too tired to to, to to hate that song. I'm too tired to figure it out. I mean, there's this great moment right. in the in the film when when we're young, we're, you know, the, the the young omnivorous millennial is playing survivors. I of the tiger, and the Ben Stiller character is like this, you know, jaded. Gen X guy says, oh wow, I remember when this song was just supposed to be bad. But like <laughs> it had kind of lived long enough where it had gone through several cycles of critical and right. popular. Um, you know, so you just or, or we forget the reasons we, you know, and this happens with with just societal taste in general. I mean, a new just think of architecture, Sydney Opera House in Australia. This was built in the early 70s. It's it's now Sydney's most popular building, Australia's most popular building. It's iconic. People visit the city just to just to go see this. Uh, thing when it came out in the '70s, you know, it was the most hated thing. The architect was not invited to the actual opening ceremony. But you know, over time, people just got right. to got to see what was actually interesting about it. You know, taste change—that's uh, a whole other topic. But right. you know, or or people just kind of the enemies of the building kind of just faded away right. and um you see that so much in music too i
0: mean like with a little bit of distance like music has certain connotations like you know if you were a kid in the 80s listening to journey meant one thing you know it meant like oh, okay you weren't a real serious music fan you just listened to whatever was on the radio and now like after the sopranos and people have gone back to journey you know it means a totally different thing and like everybody likes journey in a way that they maybe didn't have permission to Back then.
3: Yeah, I mean, it kind of raises the question of whether whether anything is kind of beyond you know rehabilitation or, or critical, right. you know. But no, I mean, this gets back to issues that have been talked about for hundreds of years. i if I can mentioned David Hume on this podcast, you know, the philosopher, <laughs> empiricist you just philosopher. Did. From, uh, <laughs> you know, he, t- he was talking about how, you know, temporary authority or prejudice may give, you know, kind of a, this boost in reputation to a poet who, you know, will later decline in reputation. And, but, but he, you know, he thought the test of time would, you know, kind of surface this stuff in the end. And, um, I mean, I, I don't have a great music example that's been done as far as science, but there was a very interesting, um, study done with Art and it just brings up this thing of of called mere exposure, psychological theory that simply hearing, simply being exposed to something, we we could say, hear, uh, being exposed to the same piece of music twice, you know, there's there's a better chance you're going to like it the second time, right? Just because you're becoming more fluent in what that thing is, and then there's a whole other theory that says the more. Fluent you are in something the better you feel about that actual thing. That made
0: me think about my sister when she went to college and and roomed with somebody from Minnesota and became back an incredible huge Prince fan just basically because she had listened to you know Prince, you know, for an entire semester. You know, not that Prince isn't great, but like the yeah. fact is if you listen to something enough,
3: yeah. Yeah, now this raises a question, you know, if you hear something that isn't really that good. If you keep hearing it, are you actually going to think it's better over time? So there was a study done. They took some paintings. They took two paintings. Uh, one was by Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. This is this incredibly <laughs> popular American artist who critics hate, but was sold in shopping malls. You know, he has he has his own Lazy Boy recliner. He's like a you know. Then they took paintings by someone actually in the canon of uh, of art, John Edward uh, Edward Millay, English landscape painter. They showed all the, all these kids these paintings. First time, they actually liked Kincaid more, but the, the more exposures they had to each, you know, Kincaid started to drop. Malay started to go up. It, it almost gets back to those kind of simpler songs we were talking about. People just found more to like in this other thing that right. in the beginning was a bit hard to figure out. And
0: that comes back to, yeah, the more complicated Beatles songs. Like in the end, like if something has a little bit more going on, it's still gonna test, uh, it's still gonna survive the test of time, hopefully.
3: Yes. I mean, and it, it, all these things kind of involve fluency. I mean, if just language itself, there's a, a good chance you're going to like the sound of a language more the more you actually understand it. I mean, we all kind of have this experience of hearing someone maybe speaking. We even think we're, they're speaking louder than they really are because it sounds so discordant to our ears, this thing we don't understand. And, but once you actually know it, you, know, you can begin to really appreciate it. So.
0: There were a couple other, before we go, there were a couple other interesting points that I had to mention. Like, there was one thing about how someone had figured out exactly when people's music tastes kind of like solidify. It was something around like 23 and a half years or something for most people, like their, their music tastes don't change. Like, how, how did they come up with that or like what, what was the story behind that? I mean, that yeah. sounded right to me. A lot of people stopped listening to new music after that.
3: Yeah, I mean, back then, that research was done, you know, using surveys. I mean, now, you know, with Facebook and online data and Spotify, you could probably really drill down to it. It hasn't been done yet, as far as I right. know. But um, so they, they were doing surveys, you know, and asking people. But, um, you know, the theory, they had they kind of ran through various theories of, you know, whether there was this kind of critical, sensitive period in which your brain was kind of open to hearing music. And then that would you would kind of lock right. on to that. I mean, I, I'm not... I I don't put so much stock in that I I just think that you know it's a combination of a period though of, of kind of peak identity formation mixed with a lot of leisure time Mixed right. with a huge amount of of socialization, uh, right. you know, you, you, when do you spend more time with your friends than in those sorts of periods? So that makes
0: sense to I me. Think, yeah, yeah a lot of people are just kind of figuring out where who they are in college and high school, obviously, and and that's when they're listening to the most music.
3: Yeah, and then you know, so so unless you're kind of a pro, you know, in the music business, uh, like you know, working at Rolling Stone, you know, it's hard to you know, to have this appetite or, or need to go out in your 40s and try to find. You know, either new genres or new uh, uh, rock is just to sound like a ridiculous, you know, Philistine fogey here, you know, so you you sort of hear a band now and you instantly want to compare it to things you've heard before in previous decades. And then you're wondering, well, why maybe why should I even listen to this now when I could just sort of go back and listen to that? It would just be easier. And, you know, are you saying you haven't listened
0: to the new Graham Nash record? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, I have to. Okay. All right. Um, there, was, there was a couple other things. You, you did talk to one last thing. You talked to a uh, guy who worked for a website that's not around anymore, but it's called Hunch, and he w- his job was to kind of like – do taste maps, which was kind of like connecting very unrelated things to people's taste. Like, the people who listened to fun were more likely to cut their sandwiches diagonal. Uh, there were a couple of interesting things from that. One thing was uh, about Pink
3: Floyd. I think the Pink Floyd actually I think came from from Spotify okay. uh, from, from the the Echo Nest, which okay, is the, you know right. this music intelligence that the Spotify actually bought. Um, right. and that's the reason you know just by the way why Spotify's uh, weekly discovery playlist has gotten so much better thanks to the Echoness, it used to be very... Uh, kind of generic and kind of looping and giving you the same things, and I, I, it was a kind of a cul-de-sac of of musical tastes. Right. But Yeah. New, a lot of people p- had
0: that kind of like spreadsheet feel with Spotify, where they didn't know what to play next. And then, so then, Spotify bought Echo Nest, which yeah. is this tech company from Massachusetts that yeah. does kind of algorithms and tries to figure out people's tastes. And right.
3: they're just much more clever at, at making kind of di- more more discovery happen. Kind of picking you know things that are maybe, maybe you know one click off what you. It would expect the computer to pick for you, so it's just—it's right. gotten to be richer. But, um, but no, they were just looking at uh, music and people's um, political uh, affiliations. And, right. You know, that looks
0: so surprising to me. So Pink Floyd fans are more likely to be Republican. You said.
3: Yes, but then they then they kind of you know drilled down, and it, it was early Pink Floyd tilted more Democratic.
0: Ah, so like Sid Barrett <laughs> era Pink Floyd. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then
3: that makes sense. Some bands, you know, were like. You know, on Netflix, like the Shawshank Redemption, as a recommendation is useless because everyone just sort of loves the Shawshank Redemption, or you know, you can't use that to predict anything right. about anyone. But and the same with the Beatles, the right? The Beatles, the Beatles, Shawshank Redemption.
0: the Beatles. So basically, Beatles fans, There's, it doesn't tell anybody, uh, a scientist, anything about your political affiliations if you say you like the Beatles.
3: Right, exactly. And the least predictive of all genres was metal. I mean, because as they were trying to describe it, there are many different ways into metal. You know, there's many different genres of metal, from sludge metal to various Nordic black strands to, you know, American hair metal. You know, so all those kind of have different uh, connotations going on there. Right. um, I think Paul Ryan's a big... Metal fan isn't he? Yet another yeah. way, yeah. Right. I'm sure we can think of some some Democrats and maybe right. even some socialists up in Vermont. Uh, right. Who, uh,
0: well, we could just keep talking about this. There's so much. Uh, there's so much uh, fascinating stuff in this book, and I encourage uh, people to check it out. It's called "You May Also Like: Taste in an Age of Endless Choice." It's out now on Knopf. <laughs> And that was Pearl Jam playing Corduroy live. I have here Andy Green to talk about Pearl Jam, who are on tour currently. Andy, yep. thanks for coming on. No problem. This is our Reader Mail segment. Andy, recently you've written a couple stories about this tour and what else is going on with the band, including Jeff Ament's new solo group. Right. Well, first up, but tell me what's going on with Pearl Jam these days.
2: They've sort of broken free of the album tour cycle and are just going on tour right now. It was first kind of pegged as their 25th anniversary tour, but they kind of spiked that. This is just the tour for no clear reason, just for fun.
0: I see why they did that, because they just celebrated their 20th anniversary five years ago with a right. big Cameron Crowe documentary, and they probably didn't yeah, want to be just the anniversary band. Yeah,
2: if you keep doing the anniversaries, then you're the moody blues or something where you're sort of not a real relevant thing. You know? I think that there's no reason to go every five years with, with that thing. So they're smart, as you say, to not do that.
0: Well, we both were at that Monday show at Madison Square Garden a few days ago, which was fantastic. And Andy, you've seen them a few times on this tour. Can you, what, is there anything different about this tour
2: Yeah, any, because, new stuff that
0: they're, they're doing?
2: Yeah, it started of a cool tour because they're not really supporting any new album. So that gives them a chance to really just do random shit that they feel like doing. So they played 10 about, about, about four shows back. That's the first time they've done that since it was a new album. They played verses at a show. They've been doing cool covers. They did a Prince tribute. They brought Cheap Trick out. They brought Sting out. It's sort of just every night is just a big surprise. So they've kind of loosened up, and you, and you were
0: saying, I remember a few days ago that they've kind of like made peace with some of their bigger '90s yeah, stuff. Yeah,
2: if you saw them in like 2003 ish, they would maybe do like one song off of ten. They would do most of their new album. They were trying to not just be that nostalgia band from the peak of their career, right? But they've been around for so long now that they have kind of surrendered, and a huge chunk of the show <laughs> is their '90s songs. I mean, there's on most shows, they, get, they do seven songs off of 10, and then right. like five off of verses. They sort of just have given up and are happy just to do what works live and not try so hard to be against what people want to hear.
0: Right. I mean, I think there was probably a moment, maybe you tell me if you think this is right, but in the middle of their career, or maybe like five or 10 years after they came out with 10, where they didn't want to just appeal to maybe the more casual fans who just
2: like 10 yeah, I think that they got so big off their first album. Those songs became so incredibly famous. Just to keep playing "Even Flow" over and over and over again would just be appealing to the same fans they had at that time period. It was smart to sort of shrink the size of the fan base down and appeal to the to the more hardcore, small group of fans that they that they cultivated. Well, you have to say. I mean, just just seeing them now,
0: you have to say like it kind of worked incredibly well. I mean, they, just seeing the their fans a lot of whom are middle-aged now like the the energy level of the crowd i thought was really Amazing. I mean, this is a crowd that, like, looked like they were at their first rock show, you know, like, pumping their fists and, like, singing along to every song in a way you just are not going to see it like maybe another, uh, I'm trying to think of another band at that level who's been around for that long. You know, if you go see uh, the Sting Sting Peter Gabriel tour, they're probably, like, a generation older, but, like, a a band, you know, quite at that level, it seemed remarkable to me.
2: Yeah, I think that lots of concerts are just too rehearsed. They get, they get one show down right, then they do it a million straight times, and the lack of spontaneity just becomes tedious. Whereas Pearl Jam, they really feed off the energy in the place. They change it up so much each night. It's the equivalent of a Springsteen show or something where anything feels possible at any moment. And they're, they're really and the songs are so much better than the album versions. They've been a live band from day one. And it's sort of, they're as good now as they were then, which is pretty amazing because they're in their 50s now. I mean, like they're old. <laughs> and
0: they really made a decision, right, at a certain point, to say, like, we, okay, we are who we are. We we are a great live band. We're we're just gonna be that. You yeah. Know, they still make albums, but it's not like they they're trying to. Yeah.
2: I think top that the
0: charts or get on the radio so much.
2: They realized long ago there'll never be a, another Jeremy or something, some song that's all over the radio that the whole world knows. So there's no point in even trying. Oh, So, they scaled everything down and didn't really try and write singles. They didn't put singles well, I, out. Well, I mean,
0: I don't think that it's, you make it sound like they right. gave up, but I felt like they no. put their energy somewhere else. They yeah. said, like, we are who we are. I mean, it was a choice.
2: Yeah, it was a choice to just focus on their live show and make great albums, but not try and be pop stars.
0: Right. Well, let's read a couple reader letters. Okay, this is from a frequent commenter with the username Get to Work People. Okay. Okay. I used to love PJ until all the socialist talk. Odd. Eddie is worth $90 million. Not sure where that number is from. (laughs) How come he doesn't give $80 million to the government for wealth distribution? Question mark, question mark. I noticed that the tickets for the show start at $70. Why don't they still sell tickets for $35 to $40 for their real fans that don't have the ability to spend $125 to $200 for a show? I had high hopes for them back in 92 or so when they sold tickets for $35 and you had to show ID to get in to stop the scalpers.
2: Wow. Well, I have a lot to say to the get-to-work people. First of all... <laughs> you don't agree with now, I don't agree with a single thing he says there, basically. But they are a very charitable band. They run charities. They're very that focused on their charities. They help out veterans. They help out the poor and the hungry. That's been their focus for 25 years. They Huge. are very active. Yeah, yeah. they have a whole office dedicated to charitable yeah, their charity. yeah, And they charge $85 for every seat in the entire house. Yeah, and it's the same price as in the first row as the last row of their nosebleeds. When they could charge probably three fifty per ticket for the best seats, they'll sell them out. But right. they choose not to do that. They leave millions on the table. And, and that kind of is
0: the standard rock concert or any concert practice is to uh, yeah. obviously you know sell yeah. the seats yeah. up front for more money. And, yeah. Yeah.
2: Almost every other tour does everything they can to ring every nickel out of the concert. They take on sponsorships. They have gold circle. You know, like ticket prices. They have tiered prices. They have backstage meet and greets for five thousand dollars. You get you get some lame picture. You know, they squeeze their fans for everything. Pearl Jam has never done that. And of all bands to attack for charging too much for tickets and not being charitable, they're one of the last. Right. Stuff. Yeah.
0: So, he, I yeah, I don't even know if they do have. They, he does say that they spend that they charge one hundred and twenty five. Uh, yeah, to $200, which just doesn't wildly seem untrue. That, yeah, it seems no. factually incorrect. Yes, it's wrong. Uh, okay, let's move on to our. This is a uh, letter from someone with a username, The Good Doctor. Saw them last tour, great live band. However, something has to be done as you simply can't get tickets, still on the tickets thing, through Ticketmaster anymore. Two shows at MSG were sold out in less than a minute, and the $85 tickets never came down below $200 on StubHub. Missed the days. When I w- would send a thirty dollars money order to the Garden and get four seven fifty tickets to see Led Zeppelin, yeah. okay, those days aren't coming back. Yeah. But we'll, this does bring up an interesting point because this, this is putting uh, Pearl Jam tickets in the context of like kind of just how the ticket business works. do you, yeah. want, do you want to speak to sure. that? Sure.
2: Well, it's a basic issue of supply and demand. They did two nights at the Garden. They could have probably done two nights at City Field, and 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 sold ten times. As many tickets, so there's a lot more demand than supply, and scalpers just use these. They use they use bots. It's these programs to just suck up all of the best seats, and that's not Pearl Jam's fault. It's sort of just something that's almost unavoidable in the industry.
0: Well, this is an interesting thing. uh, Some artists do say that, like, okay, we charge more for our face value so that we are meeting the market demand and there is less demand. So you could make the case that by charging $85 – Pearl Jam is creating huge demand because those, yeah. those $85 front row seats are going to go super fast, and, and the, the scalpers and the StubHub, the legal scalpers or whatever you want to yeah. call them, are going to have more incentives exactly. to, to get them.
2: It makes the profit margins on the, on the scalpers huge. It right. makes it very hard for fans to get tickets, but they have the 10 Club. It's their fan club where they have a huge chunk of tickets that are just sold to their fans and the scalpers can't touch those. And there's other cities that have paperless ticketing, which is really scalper-proof. It's just in the state, in New York, that's been outlawed. It's a law basically that's written, that was written by the scalper lobby to make sure that these cheap Pearl Jam tickets could be resold for a fortune. Right. So it's a it's a, it's a huge problem. it, it in New York where the demand is the greatest and they've outlawed a very simple solution. Uh, but I think Pearl Jam would argue it's better to keep tickets low and a bunch of fans still in for face value than charging the market price and right. charging like 350 or more for, for tickets, which right. would be even worse. The fact is
0: like the bands that do yeah. use that argument are still charging it's 300 s- or 400 yeah. or $500 it's, for tickets and, and, and fans are not fans
2: Right. <laughs> it's, that. It's just some rationalizing greed basically. Right.
0: Right. Uh, Okay, we have a comment from a reader named Adam Johnson. I could go to a million PJ shows, but man, a show with Lightning Bolt or Binaural played front to back would be a huge disappointment. Uh, Adam is talking about what you were saying earlier about how they're they're playing full albums front to back. Yeah. Would Would you be happy to hear either of those records?
2: I'd be much happier to hear Binaural, which is an awesome album. But I think it's, it's definitely something that they're aware of, which is why they played 10, they played verses, but they haven't touched Riot Act yet. They know the fans want to hear, and I'd be surprised if they did a binaural show or a lightning bolt show, even though both are, are very strong albums. They focus their shows so much on the first 10 years of their catalog, so I wouldn't worry if you're seeing Pearl Jam that you're going to get lightning bolt for all two hours. All right, Adam, maybe yeah, you might not have too much to worry about. Yeah. All right, and with that, I think
0: we might wrap it up. Uh, Andy Green, thanks for coming on. No problem. And that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please subscribe at the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be back next week.